standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am very much enjoying Samira Wiley's intonation as she talks about monkeys on Night on Earth. I don't know anything about that. It's a new series about animals on Netflix and Samira Wiley is giving it her best not David Attenborough. You're really but into these good. like monkey programs at the moment. It's aren't not you? just monkeys; it's all kind of animals. Okay. There was quite a lot on pumas and lions and ocelots. Pumas? You that's sound like you're from the fence. Pumas. pumas. That's what she calls them. That's because they're um, American. Because, yeah. For no apparent reason, people who live out in the fence sound American because they say Tuesday and things like that. Puma and puma. <laughs> they do get a lot you of doe and toen. I'm going to bring puma. my puma to the pub on Tuesday. Somebody once, I once answered a phone when I worked at the Cambridge News and a voice said, I'd like to talk to someone because I think I've seen the femme puma. <laughs> and I nearly shit myself laughing. <laughs> he used to say it on Braveheart as well. I don't know if you ever watched Braveheart. Speed of the puma is what he used oh, to say. Oh, yeah, yeah. Strength of a bear. Yeah. And the other one. Eagle. Flight of an eagle. Maybe. Sight of an eagle. Ears, Ears of, of an a eagle. <laughs> Shite of a rhino. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this weekend I made a list of all the niggly little jobs that I needed doing in my house, and then I did them. What a smug bitch. I thought that was my line. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Jen Offord, and I would like to know, how do you really know if a plant needs repotting? Are the roots coming out of the bottom? It's a weird pot. I don't really know. Okay. The leaves have started falling off inexplicably again. It did this. Is this, it, this is aloe vera? No, that is just. I you're going to come to my house in a few weeks, and I'll just show you what's going on okay. with the aloe vera. It's the same. Well, in answer to your question, then you ask me or Mick. Well, I'm glad we had this chat. Later on, we chat with comedian, actor, and writer Catherine Jakeways about spending rather too much time with your family and her new Radio Four sitcom, Tea Time. I chat to author Kieran Millwood Hargrave about her new Times number one best-selling novel, The Mercies. Becca McFadden tells us about the new play she's directing, Closed Lands, and why the West is so keen on building walls, that's literal ones and metaphorical ones. In Jenny of the Blocks, I'm catching up with what's been going on in women's sport. And laughing in the face of Storm Dennis, which I'm not really doing, to be honest, because I just had a fucking nightmare on the trains. But in Dunleavy Does Disney, we're watching Twister. But first, buffer zones, shameful stats, and how we are all the media. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. No, we've never heard of the new Chancellor either. Who actually is it? He's called Rishi something. He had a name that was so unfamiliar to me, as in I'd never, ever heard it, that I wasn't able to identify whether it was a man or a woman at the start. I did think, wowzers, have we got the first female chancellor ever? No, what we've got is uh, a cardboard cutout of a human being with Dominic Cummings behind, waving the arms. Cool. A puppet called Rishi Sunak. Never heard of him. Exactly. As, as you say. As I said. I'd have put money and coral, not because you don't know politics, Jen, but just because... Who is he? Who the fuck is he? <laughs> we start with some sad news following the announcement on Saturday that presenter Caroline Flack has died aged 40 after taking her own life. The news came as Flack awaited trial for an alleged assault on her boyfriend Lewis Burton back in December, an attack that Flack denied and a prosecution that Burton said he did not support. In the months leading up to her death, Flack was the subject of intense media scrutiny, with the tabloid press very much leading the way, and she had stepped down from her role as host of ITV's Love Island. It is a really, really regrettable story, but one that we can all learn lessons from, and I direct this at least in part to social media users who were quick to call out the tabloid press over the weekend, 
and the Crown Prosecution Service and other ITV hosts Anne McPartlin and David Walliams, among others. And those hot takes on the CPS, McPartlin and Walliams are, in my view, wildly misguided. Mm -hmm. I agree that the British tabloid press should not be able to hound people in the way that Caroline was clearly hounded and logic tells me that such treatment would not do any good to anyone's mental health. However, let's not pretend taken to social media to dogpile journalists, presenters and public prosecutors as we decry the inhumane treatment of others is anything but hypocritical. I want to make a couple of points here. Firstly, that the tabloid press write articles about topics that sadly the British public want to read about. They're funded by clicks. There would be no point in them covering topics of no interest to the public. I don't say this to defend them. I think their bullies and their commentary, particularly of women, is vile. But I also don't read them. Secondly, whatever you're saying about Caroline Flack on social media, good or bad, is damaging. Firstly, you're speculating about the cause of her actions and you couldn't possibly know what they were. Mental health is a complicated issue and speculation about it will only drive further stories. That's how these outlets work. Editors prioritise content on the basis of trending topics, likes and retweets on social media. So you're driving more of it if you're talking about it, good or bad. Thirdly, platitudes about the country of Dan Wooten, who my friend once described as happy teeth, sad eyes, which I think (laughs) says it all really, will be of little comfort to the family and friends of Caroline Flack. And I say this as someone who lost a brother to suicide under very, very different circumstances. Obviously, my brother was not famous for a start. However, I can tell you that even on a tiny local platform, media attention was incredibly painful. And we literally had one door knock one phone call and a couple of articles in the local news. Twitter didn't exist in 2004 and I am extremely grateful for that. But just knowing that people would be gossiping about my family because that's what it is, it's gossip, was pretty damaging to my own mental health. If you quite rightly feel sad about Flack's death and angry about the way she's been treated, the ways in which you can make a positive impact going forward. One, Don't buy or read online articles by the tabloid press about salacious celebrity gossip. Don't share them. Don't even speak of them. Don't follow the people or institutions that perpetuate them. Two, vote for a government that would better regulate these outlets. The infamous page 48 of the Conservative Party manifesto literally said it would not implement the second stage of the Leveson inquiry, for example. Number three, express your sadness or anger if you feel you must, then stop talking about it. And maybe call a friend who you think might be suffering instead. And finally, a reminder that you can call the Samaritans for free on 116123 in the UK and Ireland or email joe at samaritans.org. Thanks, Jen. Well said. It's worth saying that Aunt McPartlin is an alcoholic and an addict and dragging him into this is a very risky, stupid, unpleasant, dangerous thing to do. And I just wish people wouldn't. I can't imagine what you could possibly hope to achieve by doing it. I can't imagine. I think it it is so irresponsible. Well, I think what people are trying to suggest is that, that tabloid media gives women a harder time than it gives men, which is correct. But that doesn't mean that, that the answer is that Anne McPartland should be hounded. It should be that women shouldn't be hounded, not that men should be hounded more. And that was a point that I think people really Well, this is the point, isn't it? We don't know what's happened to her. We don't know why she's done what she's done and speculation. We don't know what the circumstances are. We don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. And speculating about it is pointless Mm. and unhelpful. And her family should be given the space to 
get on with it and grieve their loss. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So, also a, a bit of a downer. If you're looking for an excuse to write to your MP, now there's a lull in Brexit proceedings, and who isn't, then why not help BPAS out? The charity, which provides abortion services in 40 clinics across the UK, is asking for support after protesters assembled en masse outside its Finsbury Park facility. 45 of the fuckers, that is the official word, stood outside for several hours, intimidating or attempting to intimidate the women using the service. According to BPAS and other witnesses, the protesters had large banners and several warm monks' robes. They were seen to follow women, shouting at them that they loved them, because nothing says I love you more than trying to impose your lifestyle choices on someone on what could be one of the most upsetting days of their life. Patients were repeatedly stopped as they left the clinic and had leaflets pushed through their car windows. Can't something be done to stop this, I hear you ask. Well, that's where you come in. Buffer zones are needed. Almost everyone agrees. Everyone except Sajid Javid. Or he didn't when he was given the opportunity to introduce buffer zones in 2018. In fact, he said doing so, and I quote, would not be a proportionate response. Something that leaves me struggling for a proportionate response of my own. So, fuck yourself, you galloping ball bag, is going to have to do in the meanwhile. He's got plenty of time to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> Pass is calling on anyone who cares about the welfare and dignity of women seeking an abortion. That's my words but probably also theirs, to write to their MP. A survey in 2017 showed that most of them also agree that buffer zones are needed. But given there's been a change in the makeup of the House since then, it's probably worth reminding them that it remains a pressing issue. You can find out more on how to support BPAS at its website, bpas.org, and you can find details of your MP so you can write to them at theyworkforyou.com. Good stuff. Mm. Well, the writing, not the rest of it. And rounding off this week's triumvirate of shittery, the number of female homicide victims in England and Wales has risen to its highest level since 2006. According to the Office of National Statistics, there were 241 female victims of murder, manslaughter and infanticide in the 12 months to the end of March 2019, which is up 10% on the previous year. And almost half, so 48%, of those female victims were killed in a domestic homicide, with the suspect a partner or ex-partner in 38% of cases. So the overall number of homicides actually fell by 5%, with the ONS stating the year-on-year decline was driven by a fall in male victims, down 11% from 484 to 429, which is clearly still a lot of tragedy. Interestingly, the number of black homicide victims was the highest in 17 years too, coming in at 97 in 28-2019. Now, before we get the equivalent of below the line, but more men were murdered, why do you think murdering men is okay? I'd like to say that I think murder is bad. Okay, uh, good <laughs> It's a shame you have to clarify, but that's the world we live in now, Mick. I'm not a fan. Not a fan. And the men murdered were mostly murdered by men. Because male violence is absolutely a thing. And ignoring that has fatal consequences. Also, we're a podcast about women and the increase in women's murders, predominantly at the hands of men, is terrifying. And as I speak, the threat to safe houses and refuges for women fleeing domestic abuse gets ever more severe. When the consequences of not having these services is, I say again, fatal. And all of this is, to put it very mildly, bullshit. Hannah Goosey, Head of Policy and External Affairs at Crisis, told The Guardian, 
These figures are a devastating reminder of why it's so important for women experiencing domestic violence to have somewhere safe to escape to. We know that leaving an abuser can be one of the most dangerous times, but currently we're leaving women with no option but to return to the very place and person they were trying to flee because they have nowhere else to go. This is truly shameful. We can and must do better than this. Well, I'm almost reluctant to say more news next time, but hopefully some of it will be good. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we celebrate sexism in all its batshit guises. Tampons for everyone! Yay! Come on, stick three up you. That's how we party. (laughs) It is, of course, categorically not how we party. Something someone needs to tell the Republicans in Tennessee who have pushed back on sanitary products being included in Tennessee's annual sales tax holiday. That's a three-day event held at the end of July which allows shoppers to buy items like computers and clothing without paying the usual 7% state sales tax. And they've stopped that just in case women go on a tampon bender. (laughs) Because what do women love? Shopping. And what else? Tampons. (laughs) Just imagine what you could do with a sort of bulk purchase that sends the Tennessee legislation under. I, for one, would be trying out our mate Taylor Glenn's recipe for tampon casserole. (laughs) Wearing a dress made entirely of sunny pads and a nifty tip for woven from the strings of tampons. I've not even bothered to use the whole of. Reckless. July, that's summer, isn't it? Well, I'd be passing out pads to sweaty, bigger-boobed women to slide inside their bra and lessen chafage. Jen, Hannah, any suggestions? Well, you've got rats. You could surely build some sort of comfortable nest for them, like yeah. luxury nest for your rats. They're very absorbent. That would yeah. solve me, you well, know, all sorts are, of problems. They are very absorbent because a friend of mine once, God, years ago, and I don't know why I've never tried it, but a friend of mine once told me that when she spills red wine on the carpet, that's when she rolls into them, <laughs> just rolls a tampon over it in the hope that it'll absorb it all up. I wish adverts did that. Yeah. That's very uh, but cool. also, what does she do when she spills blue wine? Joan, Joan <laughs> loves tampons. It's weird. Um, Joan is Hannah's Joan's cat. my cat, bizarrely, because she once broke into the box of one and then, like, ate the plastic off all of them and then just batted them round and, like, pulled on the little bit of string. So cat toys... Definitely. What's that? Uh, what's that? It's not a sketch. Is it in the young ones where he gets one out of her handbag and he's like, "Oh, mousy mouse," <laughs> like playing with it. Seriously, but she just she, she just bite the plastic enough that you're like, "Well, great, I I can't use that now because that would be weird." Don't worry, Hannah. Just go <laughs> for tampon, more tampons. Absolutely batshit crackers on the tampon buying. Yeah. You know, or maybe I don't know. I could hand them out to women and girls who can't afford period products and so have to skip school or use rags when they're bleeding each month because menstrual products are a necessity, not a luxury. Now, excuse me while I get back to my tampon martini. (laughs) And yes, it is red. But if you put tampons in a casserole, right, surely when you get there, there's nothing left. Come see us live in your faces. Yes, and please. Our next gig is in Birmingham on March the 29th, a Sunday, and it's at the very civilised hour of 5pm. We're joined by actor Helen Monks, who is currently being brilliant in the stage version of Upstart Crow, and also the boss herself, Sarah Millican. As if that wasn't enough, we've also got another guest, TBA. Check out standardissuepodcast.com for more details and tickets. I'm joined by writer and author of new book, The Mercies, Kieran Millwood Hargrave, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. I just want to say, first of all, that you're wearing a dress that I feel is sort of almost based on the cover of your book. 
That genuinely is an accident. I bought this dress from a Kate Spade sale uh-huh. about four years ago before I'd even written <laughs> the Mercy. So, but it does happen to fit rather beautifully with the cover art by Katie Took. So it I, really does. Yeah, it's a lovely dress. Thank I like you. it, but it is also lovely cover art. So you know, this book is like it's kind of a big deal. There was a massive, massive bidding war for it. There's been a lot of hype about it. I'm in the process of reading it, and it's amazing. So can you tell us a little bit about it, please? Sure. So The Mercies takes two real-life events as its beginning and its end. So the first one was in 1617 on this tiny Norwegian island called Vardje. The sea was thrown into this sudden and reckless storm. And it happened to be Christmas Eve, and all the menfolk were out fishing for their Christmas catch. And so, in an instant, 40 fishermen were killed. And this is an incredibly underpopulated place. So, it's an absolutely devastating event in all the senses. And my main character, Marin, you first encounter her when she watches this storm arrive and kill her brother, her father, and the man she is meant to marry. So in a moment, their entire lives change and they're left a community of women. And then three years later, there's the largest ever Scandinavian witch trials start in 1620. So these two real-life events bookend the mercies and in the middle it's all my imagining about what happened in those three years. How close to the actual events that took place, the the bits that you cover in the book, how close to that are they? So in terms of the storm that was actually quite well documented because it was just such a freakish and enormous event and did result in such a high loss of life. So we have eyewitness accounts that say the storm rose as if it was loosened from a bag, as if it was conjured. And that was when suspicion started to grow about these women who had been left behind. And three years later, 91 men and women were burned in these witch trials. So something really awful happened in those three years. Something built some sort of fear, some sort of mistrust that led to this mass hysteria and persecution, primarily of women. Three men were also killed, but they were, they were Sami men. They were indigenous population who was very much treated with suspicion by the church. So it's real insofar as those two events, they happened. We don't have documented evidence of what happened to those women in between. Their voices weren't considered valuable. Mm. No one was interested. No one cared. They only started caring when they sort of regained some sort of semblance of control over their lives and they became self-sufficient. And as we've seen throughout history, female power is threatening. It's threatening to the order of things. And so the lord, the lensman of Finnmark, the northernmost area of Norway, he sent in witch hunters, essentially, to try and work out if the storm had been conjured. What about the whale? The whale that opens the book, that's a scene entirely of my imagining. There are whales in in the Arctic Circle, so it could have happened. There could have been a whale that's beached in Vardja, but actually that image came to me in a dream and I'm not a writer who has these amazing dreams. <laughs> I'm always naked in front of my classmates in dreams, like it's not, or I'm flying down the stairs. But shortly after I found out about the Vardja witch trials, I had this dream where a woman in long skirts, so I knew she was from the old timey, um, was climbing down a cliff to this beached whale. 
And I thought, that's a book to me, because my books always start with images. It's very filmic, the way I write. I try and really capture that those images. And so to start with a strong image was key. And for a while, I toyed with just having the storm, because that's very visual as well. And, but I really wanted to introduce this idea, maybe, of, of fate, of prophecy. And it, and it ties in at the end, that, that image of the whale and the, the sort of the senses of that image. So it became a very important start point. There is a sense, isn't there, that, I mean, this guy is going to come in and shit's about to get very real for these women, I suspect. And there is a real, real sense of foreboding. As much as there is sort of some sense in these witch hunters that something has gone very, very wrong here or there is a higher power. The women kind of have that as well, don't they? The whale is kind of symbolic of of that. Yes, I mean, it is a place that was steeped in superstition, and it's such an interesting point in Norway's history that the book is set, because they're they're really starting to latch on to those Christian ideals and solidify those Christian ideals and start to erase their their past, which was rooted more in Norse myths. In you had the Sami population who believed in things like wind weaving and bone casting. So these two cultures that were both valid for so many years, they're really starting to butt heads, and Christianity is starting to turn violent and wanting all the control. King Christian, uh, very aptly named, was a big fan of King James's work in Scotland. Norway and Scotland had an incredibly close relationship. They they married each other's sisters and all sorts of things. So they were very intertwined, and they were intertwined in their vision of one country ruled by God, ruled by the church. In those times, that meant that there was no room for anything else. There was no room for the old superstitions, the old signs. It was seen as devilry and witchcraft. Mm. King James, of course, notoriously reasonable chap. (laughs) On that, obviously in England, there, there was a lot of witch hunting going on around the same time. Most famous one, the Witchfinder General, yes. Matthew Hopkins, who was doing stuff, in fact, very close to where I am from, Manningtree. And coincidentally, Margaret Thatcher once worked in Manningtree. But mm. Let's not go down that road. <laughs> anyway, and also, you know, famous witch trials all over the shop in in America. The Salem witch trials, probably the most famous. What made you zone in on this particular event? I came to it through a piece of art, actually. Um, Louise Bourgeois, who's one of my favourite artists, her last major installation before she died was a memorial to the victims of these witch trials. And it's on this tiny island in the Arctic Circle. Really hard to get to. And it's extraordinary. It's a black smoked glass case. And inside there's a chair that has this flame perpetually roaring out of it. And it's surrounded by these mirrors. So you go in and you just see your face reflected in the flames. And it's it's incredibly powerful and terrifying because of the noise of the flames and jarring and the heat. And it's on the spot where the women were killed. So as soon as I found out about that installation, and I didn't visit until after I'd written the book, I'd heard about these Vajra witch trials and I knew nothing about them and I think, like a lot of women, I'm fascinated by the idea of, of witches and, you know, would I have been a witch? Probably. I have a mole on my face and I love cats, so I probably would have been <laughs> first on the, first on the flames. Um, so I was just amazed that there was such a big 
scale witch trial that I had never heard of. Mm. You know, I'd heard of of Salem, of Pendle, of even of Trier, you know, the ones in Germany, but I'd never heard of Scandinavian witch trials. And the first thing I did was I looked for a novel about it because that's how I love my history is I love it. Like Philippa Gregory, like, mm. you know, give give me that that good Tudor history, but make it entertaining. And I couldn't find a novel. And then I did more research into it and discovered this storm. And I thought, this is perfect. Like these two momentous, visual, emotional events and nothing in between. So it just felt like the perfect ingredients for a story. And, you know, I do make the decision to stop just at the point the witch trial starts. So it's not a witch trial book per se. It's about what are the conditions necessary and continue to be possible in, in, even in our times, you know, how do witch hunts happen? So there's a lot of themes in the book that will be kind of, well, certainly as someone who read and adored the Deathless Girls, um, there'll be themes in the book that will be familiar to KMH, that's what I'm calling you, KMH readers. <laughs> For example, otherness and victim-blaming empowered women and people who do not like the empowerment of women. It's kind of a stupid question because, you know, these are fascinating things and very relevant to the world we live in, but what is it that makes you come back to those particular things? In particular, the theme of otherness. I'm so interested in writing narratives that de-centre whiteness as, as one way of putting it, but just the, the way we're used to being told a story. I really enjoy twisting things and taking it apart. And you couldn't tell this story without the Sami influence because these are people who existed, they continue to exist, they continue to be persecuted. The men who are killed, there are three men who are who are killed and they were the first people to be killed in these witch trials and they were all Sami. They were Nawadi, which are sort of shamans. The Norwegian Navy used to use them because they were said to have control over the weather. So sailors would go to them and ask them to, to wind weave and ensure them safe passage. And all of a sudden, those same men, because Lensman Cunningham, who's the man who rules the area, he's a naval man. All of a sudden, those same men are turning on them. And it's just about being on the wrong side of history and being on the wrong side of power. In in The Deathless Girls, I looked at traveller communities, and when I centred travellers in my story, the way we live started to seem strange to me. I was like, why wouldn't you be travelling with the seasons? Why wouldn't you you live in this nomadic way that means that you never take too much from one area? Your impact on the world is so much less because you you move from fallow field to fallow field and, and it all made more sense and that I had a similar experience writing The Mercies. Nothing is done just for the sake of it. People live the way they live because it works. And the second you try to enforce a strict order and make everything the same, that's when problems start to occur. I mean, that's how you build successful societies as well, so there's a flip side. But but in terms of even I was looking at what the, what's happening in Australia and they're saying so much of the bushfires was because they stopped these practices of burning all the dead undergrowth away, which was an Aborigine practice. And they're saying if they had been allowed to continue that, they wouldn't have had such a catastrophic... So I just think, you know, we ignore these people at 
our peril and it's such a mistake to see it as us and them and we should all be learning from each other and taking from each other but there's still such tension even in Norway between the Sami population and the whites I'll call them for for lack of a better term it's happening and it has happened and it continues to happen so I just kept seeing parallels because it's set in 1617 it's set on a tiny Norwegian island but the amount of parallels and the amount of anger I was able to draw on from my feelings towards contemporary settings was enormous and I think for that reason I'm hopeful that it will have real resonances with readers about things that are happening today. I think it yeah I mean I'm I'm sure it absolutely will. One of those things that I want to touch on Witch Hunt, we talk about this on the podcast quite a lot, is quite a misappropriated word in the sort of common vernacular. It's often used to describe things that are not really a witch hunt. Um, <laughs> it's just people calling you out on your bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and also Hannah always explains this in a way that I'm not sure I'll be able to, but the whole point of a witch hunt is that it's people with power hunting people without power whereas in fact it's been misappropriated to be flipped the other way i wondered if there was a specific reason why you chose to cover this topic at this time i mean i'm furious a lot of the time and i was furious uh, we talked about when we talked about death skulls talked about me too and mm. and and how do you channel that anger into making something and for me that thing is writing. What I hope to contribute in my writing is is to say this is what happens if we do not shut this shit down. <laughs> like things escalate and I think that we we live in this bubble where we feel safe and we feel like stuff like that can't happen again. But then you look at even evoking something like the Holocaust and you look at the rise of, of Nazism, we can't call it anything else. And it's, it's, it could happen again, and, and we need to be vigilant. And this book is a real call to arms about we need to speak up, we need to speak out, we need to protect. They come for the minorities first, but then they come for the rest of us. It's like that, that old saying, that old poem, where it's like, no one stood, I didn't stand, so who will stand for me? And, yeah. and I, I really feel I've become a lot more vocal and, and recognising my my privilege as a, a white presenting person you know if I see something on a tube I'm relatively safe to step in and say that's not all right and I think it's important to speak out and this book is me speaking out on the biggest scale I have available to me. I don't want to blow smoke up your ass because it's it's embarrassing for everyone involved but <laughs> it's it's brilliant. The Deathless Girls was brilliant. There's a lot going on for you at the moment I think the TV rights have already been bought for this that's a bit exciting. It is thrilling. And the best thing is just getting to hand your work over to someone who is a genius. So I can't name the writer attached, but she is so phenomenal. And Elaine Pike at New Pictures, who bought the rights, she used to work at Sky Atlantic and she programmed all these incredible... And just the thought that this world can be taken and grown and passed on and I don't have to do it like someone else who is really good at this stuff can do it and can imagine other lives for my characters beyond what's on the pages. That is so exciting as a writer because that's what you want your readers to do. I think that's what TV does so well is it grows worlds out of small things and, and I, I mean I'm addicted to every box set going but if it actually you know actually makes it to screen I just I'm so excited I think it's going to be brilliant. What is next 
for you? A holiday, maybe? <laughs> I'm going to Norfolk in a couple of weeks, but I'm Lovely. going for a writing holiday, so I'm not <laughs> sure it counts. But I'm still writing children's books. Yes, because this is your first adult yes. fiction book as well, isn't it? This is my debut for adults. I'm a sort of debut, is what people have been saying. So it's a whole new genre, if you like, for me, but... Obviously, I was a children's writer first, and I've got another book out in October with my children's publisher. And then my next book for Picador is a couple of years away, but it's I'm nearly halfway done with that. So in Norfolk, I'm going to finish that, hopefully. And it's a completely different setting, but similar themes to The Mercies. It's in a landlocked place. It's in the height of summer. But it takes, again, a real historical event and it looks at the women and the way that it impacted women at that time. Where can we follow you to keep an eye on what's going on? So I'm addicted to Twitter and Instagram. So my uh, tag is the same. It's at Kieran underscore MH. And I love interacting with people. So do message me. Kieran, thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, we are joined by comedian, actor, writer, Catherine Jayways. Catherine, hello. Hello. You're here to talk about your new Radio 4 series, Tea Time, which starts on February the 21st. Thank you for having the facts at your fingertips. (laughs) Tell us a bit about it. (laughs) Well, it's a Radio 4 sitcom, and we were hoping when we started it that it would end up not sounding too much like a Radio 4 sitcom, which is always my aim with uh, (laughs) Radio 4 things. I hope that's been achieved in some way, but it's supposed to be about a family who are not necessarily the kind of family you ordinarily here on Radio 4 the concept is that every episode starts with the first person coming home at night one evening you hear a key in the door at the beginning of every episode and the first person comes in and then you hear the house over the course of that evening so that each episode ends with the last person going to bed at the end of the night so it's sort of over the course of an evening each episode and it's about two generations of family and the family are Vicky and Rav, who are newlyweds, played by Amy Theon Edwards and Prasanna Pornaraja, who are both brilliant. They've just got married. So the first episode is the day they've got back from their honeymoon. But the house that they're living in is the house that used to belong to Vicky's parents. Who It's slightly complicated. Hopefully it becomes less complicated when you're listening to it. But the parents are now divorced and had to sell their house. And Vicky and Rav have bought the house slightly to help them out of a hole because they needed someone to buy the house quickly. So they've bought this house, which they've ended up living in Vicky's childhood home, and she's not really sure if she wants to be living there. But anyway, they are. But because it's the home that the family have grown up in and the parents are now living in separate bits of the town in sort of shitty flats, they still treat it as their family home. So it's sort of a royal family vibe. Not that I'm saying it's anywhere as good as that, but that was slightly the thinking. The house is sort of the the central place where everybody comes, even though it's only Vicky and Rafi now live there. Vicky's parents and Vicky's uncle and Vicky's sister all come to the house every evening. So it's about them. Sam Spiro and um, Philip Glenister are the parents. Amazing cast. Um, Yeah, really amazing, actually. And we were so thrilled. I'd worked with Sam Spiro a bit before and obviously always thought she was brilliant and we were delighted. But I'm nailing it in sex education at the moment. Uh, Oh, God, is she in that at the moment? Yeah, she's brilliant. I should know that kind of thing, shouldn't I? Is she in the new series of that? She's in the new series, Who's she playing? She plays Adam's mum. Brilliant. Oh, and I haven't started the second series yet, actually, so I didn't realise she was in She's it. really good, and she gets quite a lot to do, which is good. Oh, good. Is she getting good costumes like everybody gets in that? Towards the end of her... Toward, well, I'm not going to spoil it oh, for you, Catherine. It. Watch okay. it. She's right. really great in um, the, the Simon Amstel 
grandma's house. Grandma's house. Well, cause she I just, loved her in just that. Just takes such a relentless barrage of, oh my God, are you going out with your hair like that? Yeah. Are you wearing that hat? Why and she's so that? glamorous in real yeah. life. Have she's you got so a bra gorgeous. on? That stuff is yeah. terrific. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd work with her in... Um, for the Tracy Ullman show so I knew her a little bit from that which is always very you know and she's so good and I remember doing um, the carry on Cleo camping Emmanuel thing do you remember that when she yes. played Barbara yeah. yes. years ago um, anyway so we were thrilled to get her and Philip Glenister was suggested and I was like oh great but I you know, hadn't really realised how funny he was yeah and he's, he's a really great really funny we were so thrilled with him and the relationship between the two of them is, uh, is really good because they as I say in the first episode they're estranged uh, and then their relationship sort of becomes slightly more central to the story over the course of the four episodes. So it's sort of about them. There's only six actors in it, and it's about their family, basically. Nothing huge happens in it. It's just about their evenings and the sort of interactions between a, fa- a fairly normal family who live in a sort of slightly grotty bit of Peterborough in my head, although we ever name it as Peterborough, but that's what it is in my head. <laughs> so you touched on it when you were telling us about Tea Time in that it's not necessarily the kind of people you would normally associate with Radio 4. They're Hopefully. very they're kind of <laughs> upper working class, lower middle class, yeah. that sort of generational shift. Was yeah. that something that you thought needed more representation? Yes. It's the sort of house that I grew up in and that I feel like you don't hear often on Radio 4. I mean, you do, they're good. You know, they're much better at representing different types of families now than they ever were. But, uh, yeah, it was wanting to be a family that felt inclusive and felt felt real really so I didn't want it to be too you know the Radio 4 voices really I don't want to slag off Radio 4 not too RP very rude of me to slag off Radio 4 and very (laughs) unwise of me but yeah no it's not RP hopefully they talk the way normal families talk to each other and it's very loving and they're all you know they're absolutely each other's biggest allies but they they take the piss out of each other and they the sisters Vicky and um, uh, Lisa Lisa, thank you. <laughs> Who wrote this? God knows. I wrote, just, yeah. I wrote this amazing Radio Four <laughs> series. I love your new Radio Four show, too. Thanks. Really thanks. Big. I should have got uh, you involved in something. Yeah, somebody. I wish I'd had any involvement in that at all. Uh, Katie Redford plays Lisa, whose name I really have on the tip of my tongue. I know Katie's name much better than I knew Lisa's name, and she's brilliant as well. The sisters. She's hilarious. Funny relationship. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you for being nice about it. I haven't actually heard the finished version of it. Have you not? I heard the first edit. And then I haven't actually heard it. No, and I try... These days, in the old days, I used to be absolutely obsessed with listening to each version of the edits and, you know, get absolutely furious if a line had been changed or if a word had been cut. And, it, you know, it's madness. You can't sustain that level of sort of involvement. So I'm absolutely across the edit of it. But actually, the nice thing about Tea Time was that when we recorded it, it ended up being roughly the right length. So I knew they didn't have to cut too mm. much. In the old days, the um, old radio series that I used to do, I used to we used to record episodes that were about an hour long, and so loads of stuff had to be wow. cut. So I'm less worried about what they're going to cut now, and what. So I sort of leave it. And Sam Ward, who's produced this one very well indeed, I sort of was entirely able to trust him. So I'm guessing it's a different skill writing for. Right, I'm sorry, I've just jumped in on what one of Vicky's <laughs> questions were going to be because there's no visual. So you can't do pratfalls, you can't do... No, you can't. and it's But you can have spoon balancing on someone's face. Yes, yeah. you can, yeah. There's a character called, called Uncle Bob, who's brilliantly played by Stephen Brandon, who every episode, he has a different um, Guinness World Record that he's trying to break. <laughs> so in the first one, he's trying to break the record of the n- most number of spoons balanced on a face, um, which, again... I should have looked, looked this up for a It's 31. Like, it's 31, the record. Yeah, and he's only got five spoons, so yeah, he's looking for he's 26 more spoons. spoons. Yeah, yeah, so a lot of 
I mean, so you can sort of have jokes of every now and then they'll be talking about something else and then you just hear a load of spoons falling. <laughs> but yes, I suppose that's the sort of radio version of that. But it is a bit different. And actually, as another way in which sometimes it can be a bit annoying when you listen to radio stuff because you have to have, oh, mum's just come in the room with a cup of tea. Yeah. And you have to have the sort of characters do a lot of the explanation for you, which can be quite, you know, it's a whole other level of exposition yeah. you have to sort of get out there which is a bit I saw, I saw um, Ahmad Oyanuti interviewing Steve Coogan oh, wow. once uh, I didn't go but it was on YouTube yeah. and they actually talked for a long time about radio comedy, oh, uh, comedy and oh, how God, you I get away from that, that whole so <laughs> is, is that a door opening I hear yeah. and, or breathing just like having to actually <gasps> sigh into the microphone rather than you and know, also just, just a real skill to remind people that an- another character is still there just yeah. kind of kind yeah of, you have to have <laughs> Yeah. 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 I feel Quite like I should say scene. something. On yeah. that note. Yeah. Jen's been balancing 33 spoons on her face <laughs> as we've been talking. But there's the whole skill of the, the Foley artist whose job it is to stand... When you record stuff at Maida Vale for the BBC, there's a person called... Did, do you even know that expression? Because I didn't know it. But it's a Foley artist whose job is basically to be the person who stands there and you never hear them in person but they're doing all the sound effects basically so they might have like a pair of boots that they're doing on some grass or <laughs> on a step or on a wooden floor to make the different sounds and, and if somebody has a drink to drink then th- there's a man standing there who, or a woman <laughs> standing there who will pour the drink for you and will do all the sound effects of the, and the, quite a lot of cooking going on in tea time obviously because of the fact that it's tea time and so there's, you know, they were doing all the sound effects of that and they do it all absolutely live it's such a thing that they do at Made of Ale Sometimes when you're doing other radio series and other studios, they put that all in afterwards, which is always a bit disappointing because I quite like watching the person whose job it is to do that. But it's a whole career. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Foley artist. Foley yeah. I think that. I think I've got that right. No, you are. You're yeah, don't, absolutely don't they right. punch cabbages? Not cabbages. Um, lettuces. Yeah, they, they really hate vegetables. Yeah. Apparently, <laughs> apparently lettuce is like punching a lettuce makes a really satisfying sort of like punch noise. I don't know uh, yeah, why. Yeah, I think that is one of them. I uh, read this somewhere. There's various things yeah. that are the way that things sound which actually aren't what they are. Oh, yeah. But we tried to do it, particularly with Uncle Bob's record that he was breaking. We tried to do it as much as possible because there's another one. I don't know how many episodes you've heard, but there's another episode where he is trying to fit as many marshmallows as he can in his mouth <laughs> and we did that where there were a couple of packets of marshmallows and we were asking Stephen to put the marshmallows in his mouth and we didn't none of us were quite on top of how many he'd eaten <laughs> by the end of him doing the whole episode I think he'd had two whole packets and he was really quite unwell oh no but, um, he's dead now yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's very wow. well died for his art Let's talk more about the storyline. So I'm getting married later this year. Oh, and, and while I'm Thanks. And while I'm lucky enough to like my future in-laws, I certainly don't feel like I'm marrying the whole family in right. the same way that Rav has absolutely done. Yeah, He's married into Rav. this whole family. Do you think I should be sad about that? <laughs> uh, it depends what the, your in-laws' family are like. What are, the, what, are they far nice? Far away. Okay. <laughs> How far is that? Is that uh, sort of Reading. Oh, I'd say I'm that's London. a good... Distance. Good distance, yeah. But not in the house, which I think is, is good. Yes, that's ideal, because you don't really want them. If they're in Aberdeen, it is, you will still have to visit them, and then you'd have to do that journey all the Scotland's time. Scotland's lovely, though. So I'd say Reading is probably the ideal distance away from you. Okay. But yeah, so for Rav, he, so he and Vicky have known each other a few years, and actually he, it becomes apparent over the course of the series that he met her because he started going out with her sister, which she's thrilled by. Lisa loves the fact that actually she started going out with Rav first, and so she could have married him, which she couldn't at all. They only had one date, but in her head they could... Yes, so Rav has known the family for a while and I think he's really fond of them and actually he has a really nice relationship with um, Philip Lannister's character, actually. The two of them are quite pals. You know, I think it's like with anybody's in-laws. I've just had my mother-in-law 
with us for the weekend. He's just gone this morning and it was actually absolutely fine. But I think we all know oh. that when you've got them in your house for several days at a time. And actually, I suppose the good thing for rabbits, although they come in all the time, they're only staying for the evening and then going away again. Yeah, but it's every evening. It is every evening. <laughs> well, it's every evening in, uh, yeah, it's every evening in the show. We reckon that over the course of a week, they're probably there four or five nights a week. Oh, That's my a God. lot. Yeah, it is a lot. It would be a hell of a lot. Families, I think, can feel a bit disjointed these days. So the relationships here actually felt quite nicely old-fashioned. And I think, again, for me, touched on that class issue. They're definitely what my family that I'm from yeah. were like, everyone in and out of each other's house. Which is lovely, isn't all it? All lived on the same street, yeah. that kind of thing. It's completely one of those things where I think when you're the generation where you're the lower generation and it's your parents, it's a fairly horrific thought that your parents would actually be in and out of your house the whole time. But I've also, now, I mean, my children are not of an age yet where they're going to have their own partners. But as a, as a mother, you do start to think, oh, how wouldn't it be absolutely lovely if my kids lived on the same street and I could go and see them every day? And I'm sure they'd love it if I could live with them every day. <laughs> it doesn't occur to you that actually, you know, in the other way around, if your own mum was in, you know, if you were... Uh, getting that relationship in the other direction, you'd be furious about it. So I think it's a, it's completely something that changes with age and changes with your perspective on it. I suppose that you think that's the sort of uh, ideal scenario. Doesn't Emma Thompson have a? I feel like I've heard that uh, Emma she Thompson lives opposite um, lives, her mum. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And doesn't the sister Sophie Thompson live on the same street? Possibly. I feel I like that know. certainly has been the case over a part. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's still the case now, but I think that there's a street where all three of them live and I sort of it's one of those things that when you hear about it you think oh god wouldn't that be brilliant and I guess that it would be amazing if you, I've, I haven't got any brothers and sisters and I love the idea that if I did have a sibling that I would have that kind of close relationship yeah. with them. but actually I don't know many people who do have a relationship that close with a sibling where they would want them to be in and out of their house all the time my best mate lives in a flat in Leeds and her mum lives in the flat above her and her brother just came back from he was in Thailand and now he lives with his mum so they're all all in in, yeah and how's it working out they fucking love it do they they oh that's so sweet isn't it they really love it so do you think they'll stick with that as a yeah well Pat you know she's an old lady now so I think they're just enjoying actually having some quality time with yeah. her yeah oh how great so, yeah, I know they that really makes me love feel it. guilty for not saying that I would love it as well because <laughs> in, th- in some ways I would love it but you think you just love it for a sort of finite amount of time oh no I would fucking hate that <laughs> would you yeah <laughs> sorry Kath sorry Michael but yeah <laughs> yeah it obviously you're not moving in upstairs <laughs> yeah my mum's too into her new boyfriend it'd be very uncomfortable for everyone involved I think oh really she's having a lovely time Good she takes her. me neatly on to Vicky's parents Donna and Joe, who were freshly divorced yeah. well like sort of two years since the split isn't it yeah and the family's taken it pretty hard but given they're all adults my mum and dad split up when I was five yeah and so you sort of just grow up like yeah. single parent family so I find it interesting that people still find it hard when their parents are older, when, when you're I, older oh and God. you've got more understanding of relationships. My parents split up when I was 27. It was horrendous because oh, really? it's like, the, it's like unusual, everything it? yeah. you've ever known literally just from under you. It completely I like... People do take it harder the older they are, don't I they? I think it's really hard because it's your identity as well. To together, haven't you? Yeah. That to be the norm. Yeah, and they're much happier and I'm very glad that they're happier now. But at yeah. the time, it was awful. How did they break it to you? Basically, my dad had had an affair okay. and and some weird things had been said and I was a bit like, what's this about? And and when you're 27, that's a much harder thing to take because you yeah. don't understand the implications of that much more than if you're five or, you know, when you're a child, yeah. you, told, you probably wouldn't get told all the details or wouldn't understand all the ramifications of that. Yeah, and I think, like, those specific circumstances, obviously, like, when you're a woman 
and you've had men be shit to you and then you realise your dad's yeah. been shit to your mum or whatever. Yeah. Obviously, like, different circumstances will have different meanings. I, I mean, I don't know because I haven't had yeah. my parents split up when I've been a kid, So, I'd, but I gather that is not much fun either. Yeah, It was pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they seem to be the sort of staying friends, which is proving tricky in another way for their kids. Yes, they're, sa- they're slightly saying too much friends in the first episode. Catherine, where can people find you and find out more about what you're up to? Well, they can listen to Tea Time, which is on Radio 4 and also on BBC Sounds on the 21st, did you say? Yeah. Uh, February, <laughs> I was going to say it again. Friday at 11.30, sorry. Um, also, the same week, weirdly, I've got a new episode of a series that I've been writing on Radio 4 for a while, which the first episode is called Where the Service Will Terminate. It's about two people leaving on a train. This is now the fifth episode of that, and actually that's going to be on in the same week. And other than that... I don't know, really. I'm on Twitter. Yes, what's what your you handle? Say? What yeah. do you say? Uh, Catherine Jake, slightly embarrassingly. I'm, never, I'm not sure I've ever said that out loud before. <laughs> at Catherine Jake. I mean, I'm not on Twitter much, but that would be a way of finding me. Should you need to. Praising that, you, should you wish should to. That, oh, yeah, please do. If you're going to praise me, definitely find it on there, yeah, <laughs> at the Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for Thank coming to chat so to us. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Hi, we are joined in the studio by director Becca McFadden. Hello. Hello. Uh, Rebecca is directing a play, Closed Lands, which is part of the Vault Festival, running from the 3rd to the 8th of March. You started rehearsals. We have, yes. And how are things going? Things are going very well indeed. We've had our first rehearsal today with the full cast um, in the studio on our feet. And we've had a kind of long weekend of uh, investigation of the technical elements and the set elements of the piece because it's quite a tech heavy show especially for a festival so felt really important to spend some time in a theatre figuring that out Now your cast is all female It is, and also all migrant to the UK. It maybe makes sense to talk a little bit about legal aliens because that's not um, something that's exclusive to this show, it's something that is really one of the founding reasons for legal aliens um, which was originally established by a group of Italian actresses in London. That's your theatre group? It's the theatre group that's producing this. The artistic yeah. director is Lara Parmiani, and I've worked with her since 2008. And one of the things that I think we're really interested in as a company is looking at representation, particularly of migrant characters on London stages. So I think for us, looking at our friends, looking at the world around us as Londoners, we see a very international cohort of people, but we don't necessarily see that represented on stage. So we were interested in seeing if we can challenge certain casting paradigms. So if there's an Italian character, for example, why not see some of the great Italian actors who are in London for that role? So in our productions, we tend to work almost exclusively with performers who are migrants to the UK, and most of them are actually non-native English speakers. So in this cast, we have Lara Parmiani, who I mentioned um, is the artistic director. She's originally from Italy, but she's lived in the UK a long time. Caterina Conte, who is uh, from Brazil. We have Luiana Bonfim, who is of Angolan Portuguese descent. And then we have Daiva Dominica, who is from Lithuania. And of course, we have me. And I'm not from the UK either, as you can probably (laughs) tell. I grew up in Pennsylvania. So let's talk about Closed Lands, because it's about walls. Now, when I was reading this, really interesting to me because we 1986 or 87, I think it was 87, 
Reagan gives that amazing speech about how they should tear down the wall, mm. tear down the Berlin Wall, and everyone's chanting, tear down the wall, and clapping and cheering. And 30 years later, Donald Trump gives a speech about putting up a wall mm-hmm. and gets almost exactly the same response. What you're trying to tell here is how we've gone from the one state of affairs really to the other. Yeah, the piece really looks at contemporary wall building as a global phenomenon, trying to understand, like, why are we building all of these walls? It starts with the fall of the Berlin Wall as being this very celebratory moment, like it felt like, as was written at the time, the end of history, like democracy and progressive values have triumphed. And what this piece really does is looks at how wall building now is being used sort of as a form of theater. So uh, Simone Grandia, the writer, was very influenced by a book by an American political theorist called Wendy Brown. She wrote a book called Walled States, Waning Sovereignty. And she actually looks at how globalization has made countries feel sort of quite insecure in terms of asserting their sovereignty in a traditional sense. So on one hand, we're more mobile than ever globally. Like we can talk to people anywhere in the world and that can't really be controlled by nation states. But that's something that there's a lot of anxiety about. So this wall building is really more of a performance for citizens. It's a demonstration of power rather than it is actual power. So actually in this book, she talks about the theatricality of walls, how they perform sovereignty while actually failing to keep people out. And I think the Trump wall is the perfect example of that, right? It's whether it's built or not, and read a really interesting article as part of our research process in the New York Times that sort of tracks the language he's used to talk about the wall, Mm -hmm. sort of from when he was a candidate to now. And some of it, it's gotten vaguer and vaguer. First, Mexico was going to pay for it. Then, you know, maybe they'll pay for it indirectly. And it's just very clear that it's most powerful as a rhetorical device. It's powerful as this sort of big theatrical idea, which is not to say that that this sort of immigration industrial complex isn't destroying lives, Mm. because it absolutely is. But also these walls in particular seem to be particularly valuable as symbols for a sort of type of populist politician. In a way, Trump not building his wall would be better for him in as much as he can always talk about building the wall. Mm-hmm. Whereas if once it's built and it doesn't work, exactly. then he comes up It can always be, oh, if, if then, if yeah. we had the wall then, yeah. It's interesting timing over here in Britain as well to be doing this particular play. How are you feeling about all that? Post-Brexit, now it's actually <sighs> fucking happened. I am so traumatised um, because I... I have been a naturalized British citizen since November 2017. So I got permanent residency kind of as the referendum was happening and I couldn't participate in the referendum. And one of the reasons I chose to pursue British nationality was because it was very important to me to be an EU citizen. So I'm actively looking for a class action lawsuit that I can join because I feel like I spent 10 years of my life to get these rights that are now being yanked out from under me. So it's quite personal, that one. And I think for us as a collective, you know, most of the artists in our group are EU nationals. They're in the UK because they hold EU passports. And I think we see our work. We've toured our projects to Italy. Um, I think we see our work as so international, not only us. I think all of us in the arts are kind of beside ourselves over this. It's not a building of a wall, but it is another type of isolation. And mm-hmm. it's one of the things that, that Wendy Brown talks about that feels particularly relevant in, in Brexit. And it's actually a quote that's in the show. You can't create a barrier to keep people out without also keeping people in. Yeah. And so, you know, she talks about creating a, a society of hunkering and huddling behind the wall that 
they're as damaging or can be in different ways to the people behind us. That's exactly what we're in. doing, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It just, like you it just can, yeah. breeds fear. It yeah, breeds just fear. like read the newspapers. That's exactly what's happening. Mm. People, people are, are in for it, not in for it, up for it. Yeah, yeah we're the new East Berlin. Yeah, <laughs> by Jay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm currently building something that I can pedal, and it will take up over, fly me into Europe. I'm making a massive catapult. <laughs> <laughs> This is particularly about women's stories. So what is it about these women's stories that drew you to this piece? Yeah, I mean, I think originally the piece was written um, by a French male writer, uh, and it's written as a series of poems. So there's seven poems, and there are no characters in the piece. The play moves geographically. We sort of start with the Berlin Wall, then we look at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, and then we look at the notion of fortress Europe in different ways. So when we did the R&D last year, um, looking at this text for the first time, one of the things I was trying to do was sort of with my dramaturg's hat on was sort of go, okay, how do we perform this as an ensemble? We had a sense that we wanted to use a female cast because it feels like, especially in the you know in certain portions of the media, there's a tendency to talk about lone males, the the way migrants are portrayed is mm. often in that way. And we wanted to emphasize that this is also a thing that affects women and girls. It affects people of all genders. So we decided to tell the story with an all-female cast. And we broke the text down sort of into two modes, not exclusively to come see it. It's a bit more complicated than that. But we we found these sort of archetypal voices that we could really hear in the text. We hear the voice of a military logistics expert, of a politician, of a citizen who's just trying to figure out what's going on, and then of a migrant. And then we also have a chorus of migrants. And we have another character who's a bit the voice of the media and that's social media and also kind of what we think of conventionally as media. And so it's important to us in the staging that the audience realize that the position that we kind of view these archetypes and characters as existing within a system in relation to one another. And it's important to us that the audience realize that any of us could occupy any position within that system at any time. Sort of where we are in that system is really an accident of birth. And we really hope audiences take away that our one security as the citizen, we've not done anything to earn that. That's just where one's at. So for us in the staging, we rotate. Each of the performers in the piece will play all of those roles. It's interesting that you said that migrants are sort of seen as lone men. I actually wrote my dissertation about this. Oh, um, wow. And basically came to the conclusion that the reason for that is because it's, it's all about sex, basically. <laughs> I just wondered if you had any other insights or... I mean, I think a lot of what you're saying resonates with conversations that we've had sort of looking. We really see this piece as sort of a staging of the discourse of the conversation around these things. And it does seem, to, you know, I think to all of us that that narrative gets pushed and that there are expedient reasons for doing so. So we want to highlight that there are other people involved as well. I thought there was something you said as well that properly hit the nail on the head and that is that sort of migrants very much being seen as others. There's a real lack of empathy to Mm -hmm. ever think what if we had to go somewhere particularly now as you mentioned earlier with everyone hunkered down in our post-Brexit Britain you know with our sovereignty just holding it close to us, giving it a tickle. And yeah, there's this, there's, there's no understanding that, you know, shit could go down that means that we have to travel. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's something that we kind of talk about sometimes in the group, because I think part of this process has been us sharing our own stories and, and just some of the incredulity where people assume that 
people must be coming from even in other EU countries like some sort of backward situation it's like no life there is actually quite nice as well mm-hmm. sometimes one just wants to live somewhere else <laughs> yeah. you, know? you know and, and like similarly like legal aliens runs workshops for um, refugees and migrants and community performance workshops and you know we have people coming Syrian refugees who are talking about their lives in Syria which look very much like our lives look yep. now but there's this assumption that somehow people are coming from places where life is something completely unrecognizable to us and mm. that there's some other type of human. Lesser. Or less of a mm. human. Yeah, yeah, and totally. I think we really see that in the piece, like the section we were rehearsing today. It's actually from the end of the play, and it looks at what happens when you get caught in this bureaucratic system and actually looks at forced deportation and the way people are treated and talked about. It, it's, it is a total lack of humanity, the way the body is treated physically and then also the way people are, are spoken of. We were just talking before we came in about Home, the sitcom on Channel 4. She's written about uh, a family who encounter a Syrian asylum seeker mm-hmm. and take him in. And the thing that bonds them with him is that he is also a teacher. And that wasn't what they were expecting when first found this guy. Mm-hmm. He was like, but my life was your life until it changed really dramatically. And yeah. that's a point that needs really like ramming home, yeah, I, I think, to people. I think that's a point we really, really hope audiences that come to see it take away. If we can kind of turn that switch on for a few people, we will feel that we have succeeded. Excellent. Yeah. So you are on between the 3rd and the 8th of March. How can people find out more? You can go to the Vault website um, and you can look at what's on on those dates and you'll find us or you can do a search for Closed Lands. You can follow us on Instagram at Legal Aliens Theatre and we'll be posting some behind the scenes stuff there. Are you able to say what's next after this? Oh. I know that we'll be having a performance featuring some of our community performers who take part in those refuge- in the workshops for migrants and refugees. That'll be coming later this spring and we're hoping also to tour this performance so hopefully more Closed Lands. Oh, excellent. Mm. Thank you so much for your time, Becca. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we, what, rejoice because of actual, real, tangible progress. Shut up. No, really, bit of news from football, but with more far-reaching implications for women's sport. It was announced that not one, but two women's football teams are to start taking steps to properly investigate the impact of their players' menstrual cycles. Periods in sport have been a bit of a taboo subject. I mean, that's kind of a stupid thing to say, really, because periods are still rather ridiculously a taboo subject full stop. Further evidence of which you will have heard in this week's Bush Telegraph. We all remember the palpable discomfort from a couple of years ago when GB tennis player Heather Watson put a bad performance at the Australian Open down to girl things, in inverted commas. And even in the last month, there's been a right old hullabaloo about the visibility of a tampon string in the most recent This Girl Can advert. I've always had painful periods, though nothing I would consider debilitating. I do often wonder, though, what a man would consider debilitating if he experienced period pains. But that's probably a whole other podcast altogether. But logic tells me you might not be at your best when you're on your period. Well, we know now, and you can hear us talk to brilliant Maisie Hill, author of the book Period Power, about this in a podcast we recorded back last year, that our monthly cycles are even more complicated than just having a few days where you're a bit hurty. However, the concept of our menstrual cycles actually impacting on athletic performance is one I first came across in the brilliant book by Anna Kessel, Eat, Sweat, Play, and that's a few years ago now. And guess what? 
Not very much research had been done into it. <laughs> no way. Well, that situation is now changing a bit and Chelsea FC women's manager Emma Hayes announced last week that the club are using a specialist app to tailor their training programme around players' menstrual cycles to not only enhance performance but also cut down on injuries. And that is because there's actually a growing body of evidence that things like weight fluctuations during menstrual cycles can have an impact on things like a player's susceptibility to soft tissue injuries such as the dreaded anterior cruciate ligament or you might have heard that referred to as the ACL which if it gets torn is an absolute bastard. Hayes who I absolutely love and wish with all my heart if she can't manage the England team can she just manage football like full stop. Anyway she said the starting point is that we are women and ultimately we go through something very different to men on a monthly basis. We have to have a better understanding of that because our education failed us at school. We didn't get taught about our reproductive systems. It comes from a place of wanting to know more about ourselves and understanding how we can improve our performance. Hear, hear. And the expertise comes from physiologist Dr Georgie Brunvels, who developed the Fitter Women app for sports science company Orico. She'll be making regular visits to the club to instruct players and staff on how to use it to help optimise performance. But that's not all, because over at Bristol City Women, it's been announced that the club will participate in a landmark study hoping to better understand why female footballers are so susceptible to ACL injuries. And this is after Bristol have suffered three instances of this in their team just this season. According to the Telegraph Sport, Bristol City have been collecting data on a self-reporting basis for several years now, but that data is going to be expanded on. Props to the club's lead physical performance coach, Chris Difford, who put two and two together and, Christ alive, listened to his players when they were complaining of debilitating period pains. He said, some are visibly not able to do what we want them to. They'd say, I'm really suffering from stomach pains because I'm on my period. That was the light bulb moment. Wow. It really is that easy. Anyway, the study is going to be led by Professor Marc de Stacroix of the University of Gloucester. There are a couple of really important takeaways here, not just for women's sport, but for society in general, other than obviously the research will be extremely useful to female athletes. And perhaps even PE teachers telling you to just run it off. Thanks, guys. Number one, clearly I've mentioned Difford, and this isn't to detract from him as he seems to have been a driving force in this, but both of these teams are managed by women, Hayes at Chelsea and Tanya Oxterby at Bristol. This is why you need women in positions of power, people, because they think about how things impact differently on women. Number two, where there are not women in positions of power, this is why you need men, such as Difford, to listen to women because they will tell you about how things impact on them differently and you could do them a massive favour by taking that intelligence on board. Shit, you could even prevent them from injuring themselves or being in other dangerous situations. Who knew? There's other stuff going on in women's sport over the past couple of weeks as well, which you may or may not have heard about. Unfortunately, Team GB's women's basketball team failed to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics. But I don't know, I'm on a, I'm on a positive vibe this week, so I'm hopeful for the future nonetheless, because they might actually get some money from UK Sport after this round of funding finishes along with those games. I've talked about this all before. I always talk about it, but it is important, so I probably will keep talking about it. And finally, the Six Nations rugby is well underway and it's going to surprise no one to hear that England women are currently the top of the table. Oh yeah. But actually Ireland are joint on nine points. 
not top of the table, goal difference, you know, that kind of thing. Having both played and won two games, Wales and Scotland are respectively fifth and sixth on the table. England and Ireland actually play each other on the 23rd, which is this coming Sunday. So that could be very interesting indeed. And I'm actually delighted to say you cannot get tickets for that. It's sold out. Though you can watch on Sky Sports and coverage starts at 12.15. Tickets are, however, still available for England v Wales at Twickenham on March the 7th. That's all for me this week. God, I've gone on a bit. But I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster got us all in a spin this week? Ooh. I've been trying them out. I know. I noticed. This week we watched something from the 90s. 1996. 1996. I was going to say that and then I thought, oh, I didn't write that down. You're probably wrong. But yeah, well done, I looked. 1996. It's, it's the year in which no woman was allowed to cut her fringe in a way that made visibility <laughs> possible. Yeah. Twister. Now, you remember I started last week by saying ever since we did Contagion, the coronavirus has become a big story. Mickey, I believe you've got something to tell me about what happened after we watched Armageddon. There's a massive asteroid heading towards Earth (laughs) at an incredible speed. And Bruce is dead. So actually, it's probably quite sensible that we do Twister now because that's in the past. We've done Storm Dennis and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Twister opens in a flashback, like an origin story type flashback, which might as well have been called the ongoing story of why I love tornadoes, in which a young girl sees her dad sucked off by a hurricane. Ah ha ha, ah ha ha. Sorry, I just understood that. Sauce. It just reminded me of, I used to work with this guy who didn't make rude jokes at all. We worked right next to a country park and I said, do you have a nice lunch break, John? And he said, yeah, I went for a walk around the country park, but I nearly got sucked off by the wind. <laughs> and it made me laugh for such a long time. I'm really glad I can insert that joke in here. Uh, also, my technology was not working that well for me when I watched the first part of this. I didn't realise that was a flashback when that was her. Yes, oh, this right. is brand new information, so thanks. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it wasn't uh, a hurricane anyway, it was a tornado. Yeah. I ruined that joke. It was, an, it was an immediate pet survives carnage, though. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. So then we go forward and we find ourselves in the 1990s where a character played by Bill Paxton... Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster yeah. film? ...is going to see his ex-wife, played by Helen Hunt, in the hope that she will sign his divorce papers. Now, the first thing to say is that this film is based on the premise, which of these two women is he going to is he going to pick? And I just cannot believe what a cunt he is. I can't believe any woman would want him, let alone two no. fighting over him. Poor Melissa was my takeaway from the whole film. Yeah. yeah. I've got her name written with lots of exclamation marks all over this. So his new girlfriend, who is basically a drawing of the 1990s and has all of the personality she and depth. She gets one of the funniest lines in the film, though. Is it when she's on the phone to... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because she's a... Um... A sex doctor. And she says, she didn't marry you for your penis. Okay, she didn't marry you just for your penis. Yeah. Is that uh, the funniest line in the film? I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm not setting the, the benchmark, Jen. <laughs> I, I couldn't... Anyway, so he goes back, he takes her, and there's no explanation of why she is there, except that she is there to be treated as a character that gets terrified and cries and screams and goes, I don't know what's happening, in order to show you how brave Helen Hunt is, or Helen Hunt's character. You have to have this pathetic creature, which they play her as. She's only there to drive the plot, which annoys me a lot. Well, she's your standard bird, isn't she? Whereas Helen Hunt, she's some sort of... She's nearly a man. She's 
incredible. She's a unicorn, man. She is a unicorn. Abs- She's a cool girl. Absolutely. Yeah. So he goes and he meets his old gang, who are all now travelling with Helen Hunt. They're and all lads Just as a well. little look at the gang. I mean, for fu- fucking hell, one of them is Philip Seymour Hoffman, which or is as- the largest surprise <laughs> I've ever had in a film. I or as, as Hannah's autocorrect sensor was, Phil Seymour Hoffman. And then she went, oh shit, Philip. And I'm like, to be fair, he is more of a Phil in this yeah. film. Oh, also, yeah. also Alan Rudd and Jeremy Davies. Yes. I mean, that's quite the pack there who, like I say, probably nobody's ever asked them about anything about this film because they obviously all just did it for money. So he wants these divorce papers signed. Right, then we meet the baddies who, like the baddies in everything, are called the Nightcrawlers. And (laughs) if anybody watches Detectorists, they are the Dirt Sharks. Essentially, aren't they? <laughs> if uh, if we're saying that Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt are Danebury Metal Detecting Club, yep. he's called Jonas and he's played by Carrie Elwes. Carrie Elwes. Sorry, I'm just going to pause. And I know this is a podcast, but I'm going to get a, an on, on-air reaction to something I did. I found a photo of a young Carrie Elwes and crikey, what a, what a hunk. What a beefcake he was. I mean, yeah. He looks a bit Elvis. He's the he's the bit, bad guy in, in the truck, James yeah. Dean. In what, sorry? In the truck, the bad he's guy the bad in the. Guy. Yeah. He's quite hot in that, isn't he? He's in the Princess Bride, which is one of my favourite films. He's amazing. He's also in the last series of Stranger Things, playing the same character he played in 1996's Twister. Who <laughs> is he in the Princess Bride? Is he Wesley? Yeah. Oh yeah, he's hot. Yeah. I just thought it was worth <laughs> reminding people. Yeah. No idea that was him. <laughs> um, if Jen wasn't pregnant already. <laughs> <laughs> so he is the bad guy nominally, but what I'm going to say is he is no less bad than Bill Paxton, whose character is an absolute tit. The first thing that you see him really do is, is actually punch the hat off <laughs> Carrie Elvis's character, which it was about the funniest thing, unintentionally funny thing <laughs> I've seen in a film for absolutely ages, just punched the hat off his head. He is so unbelievably sexist that when a twister turns up, so they're basically they're in Oklahoma and there's going to be a series of massive twisters here and they're chasing them because they're trying to put something into the middle of it to work out, to learn more stuff about twisters. So the first thing he does is, A, abandon his new girlfriend just leave her to drive for her by herself with with Phil with Phil Seymour Hoffman who is sleezing all over her. exactly and then in order to get in the main car but not just get in the main car drive the main car and there is so much weird shit about driving the dynamics between the two of them and driving in this and there's a point at which she repeatedly says shall I drive can I drive it's my van can I drive and then he completely fucks up on the road and then he goes oh you're so judgy do you want to drive but she does go, yes, yes, I do. I've been asking you to drive. Says, yes, he is such a prick. So we've got her. So so the other poor woman, Melissa, is basically just traumatised by everything that happens from now on. It's not great, this film. There's a constant need to, to explain, because maybe for people like Jen who missed that that actually was her. She constantly has to explain her motivation in it. She constantly says, but people had no warning. There was no warning. Yeah, I wonder what she was going As on about. As a reminder that what she's trying to do is invent a pre-warning system. Yeah, and also I think that's supposed to, I'm guessing, add sort of a, an air of compassion as to why we're watching these idiots literally fling themselves into tornadoes. Yeah, yeah they are all twats. They're I'm just, definitely with Melissa on they're this. They're just junkies, aren't they? They're just after yeah. the, the yeah. adrenaline. Yeah. 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 Let's just say it has a lot of plot faults in it and a lot of really, really bad CGI. 
And there's a bit in it where a tanker comes out of a tornado at them. And I've just written, mm-hmm. tanker, everything about this is shit and stupid. And I think that sums up my feelings about that. And tankers in general. She said it before. She'll say yeah. it again. She it, thinks it comes out and it and hits them and it only judders them enough to get them off a rock. They're yeah. being hit by a yeah. fucking full-on tanker. It did seem improbable yeah. at best. And then Whereas the rest of the film? The cows. Oh, cow. Another cow. I think it's the same cow. cow. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually, the bad guys get killed because they're only like 0.3% prickier than the good guys. They're not really that bad, are they? They don't really deserve death, I wouldn't say. Just just as a little aside, I'm sure it won't be of interest to anyone, but the guy who's driving Carriel is Andy Kramer. There he is. Andy. I apologise. Kramer. He doesn't he doesn't fare well when teams are the bad guy. No. Anyway, so in the end they let this thing off. Oh, their aunt's house gets destroyed. That's all some sort of yeah, side story. And then they release Dorothy and they all go hooray and then they have a snog and Melissa goes home, sad and lonely. Poor Melissa. No, she says she's not even that bothered. Yeah, she says I'm not actually that sad about it. Is yeah. It? Yeah. Fair play, probably best not to get married. She's probably just seen what an absolutely rollicking cunt he is. He's not very nice to her. He's He's not very nice to anyone. No, he's 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 just a bellend, to be fair. Um, He is a complete bellend. Weirdly, Bill Paxton was like, there was some weird, like he was related somehow to someone I went to school with. I just remember like this lad in my class, James Southern, just used to he had like one photo of him and Bill Paxton <laughs> with his family that would get wheeled out from time to time. I think it was true. I think yeah. they were related somehow, but I think he was playing the similar sort of character he plays as Chet in Weird Science. Just a giant shit. What have we seen him in before? Titanic. Yeah. Oh of course. He's in oh. the, the absolutely pointless bit of Titanic. He was quite famous at one point because he was in Aliens, wasn't he? He was like yeah. the hot one in Aliens that she was nobbing off with. Not he good, is now he, dead, yeah. But he honestly, he's such a prick that she actually gets him to do something by saying, have you lost your nerve to him? Because he's the kind of guy that won't be told you've lost your nerve. He has to then do it to prove it. He's toxic. He really is. Sunita wrote a song about him. He really is. Some of the dialogue really? is... No, but she could have done. dialogue oh. is terrible. There's a bit where they, they go to... Uh, they stop somewhere and there's a, a drive-in. Um, although that drive-in showing The Shining as it came apart was actually quite a clever move as he was coming through the door that it was coming apart. But I so, thought... Can I just say, I thought when it flicked to The Shining that the, uh, the way I was watching it had failed. <laughs> and I was like, why am I watching yeah, The Shining? I was also yeah. very confused. <laughs> yeah. There's a bit in that where they go, it's coming. And then someone goes, it's already here. And it's like, it's not a supernatural thing. It's wind. It's wind. I mean, obviously, it's extremely severe wind and it does kill people. And I like a bit of weather as much as I was going to say the next person. But the next person is actually Jen. And we already know Jen doesn't like a bit of weather. Well, I'll tell you something about the weather, Hannah. Yeah. Uh, When I was doing my big bike ride in America on the Natchez Trace, which runs betwixt... Uh, Nashville, Tennessee and Natchez Trace I think is the name of the town in Mississippi it's like right on the border of Mississippi and Louisiana Uh, there's a little woodland area as I was doing my little bike ride where it says coming up is an area that was like ravaged by a tornado and I was a bit like waiting for it to come and I was like oh this is a bit shit and then uh, you get like right into the thick of it 
and it looked incredible. Like, it looked fucking mad. It looked like, I, I can't even describe it, it looked like a car crash of trees. It was so weird and eerie, and it went on for miles and miles and miles. You would have loved it. Yeah, I would. Not so much Twister, though. No. I have written here, killed by 90s technology, and I don't know why I wrote that down. Is that how you want to go? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe it'll come to me. It's a CD-ROM yeah. incident. We just couldn't get her to restart. Do you remember CD-ROMs? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We went to Gary's grand, uh, grand's house and she records things on DVD and he had to reformat a DVD so she record over it. And I was like, wow. Did you ever go on Encarta? <laughs> no. What's that? Do you remember that? It's like the uh, encyclopedia, the mm. the Windows encyclopedia of choice. You had a little, you got it with like all Windows oh, PCs I never that you had bought. That. I never had a computer. Okay. We never had a computer yeah, it was younger. kind of the, the the encyclopedic equivalent of Ash Jeeves. Right. Yeah. So Wikipedia, but on discs. But right. also not like like actual, but actual facts. Yeah, rather than, rather than like just someone tossed it in there for yeah. lols. Rather yeah. than citation needed. Yeah. yeah. Please okay, that's what I'm going to call my autobiography. <laughs> um, anyway, let's all have a count up. I've done really badly this week. But you can have Weather Geek for like the first <laughs> time. Oh, yeah. Do you think there's provably bad science in it? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm thinking probably. Okay. I think I've got four. Oh. Mm. I have, um, oh, maybe five. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. Well, spend any amount of time in a car with either Bill Paxton's character or <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. <laughs> I don't think we saw any traffic jams, did we? No. We just saw convoys. Luckily, the twister wasn't affecting anyone but our protagonist. Yeah. My eyes, the CGI. Yeah, you were like that one. I mean, that, some of that was just awful now can i have if only we hadn't bought substandard kit because their kit was worse than jonas's kit oh no but his wouldn't have worked because he didn't know the little trick that they put at the end this consisted solely of baubles which i was confused by so i would agree with you but um and then they said get some cans and for some reason they managed to find seventy thousand cans in about 30 (laughs) seconds i like the gratuitous shots of people's hands bleeding in up aluminium cans or aluminium cans uncanny prediction of real life disaster well my mum sent me a photo of what a garden looked like after Storm Dennis so I'm taking that was there just cows everywhere <laughs> yeah just cows a tanker on fire like a 1990s Blue Peter campaign just just tin cans yep. everywhere Bill Paxton punching himself in the balls <laughs> the full screen of a drive-in yeah, um, yeah. Uh, local radio reports obviously adopt brace position which they have to like belt themselves to something screaming cowardice even though I feel bad taking it because Melissa's actually like a nice person and should have been put in that position what I will say is it does actually specifically address the question of how they're using the toilet so I couldn't I couldn't do that so I've got six six she went from four to six I know Mm. because I wasn't looking at it properly I didn't make it up I think I've got five provably bad science oh yeah weather geek Yay, finally. This disaster saved our relationship. Oh, yeah, but upsettingly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sobbing child, because she was doing a bit of that at the beginning. And there was one at the the drive-in as well. Oh, right, okay. Oh, no, not the drive-in, when it hit the town where Auntie Meg lived. And only a geologist slash man of natural science would wear this, and I refer specifically to the guy in the sort of khaki waistcoat situation. Was that Philip 
No, not him. Another guy. I think he was driving maybe one of the maybe one of the other vehicles. Vehicles. Yeah. One of the vehicles in the film. Yeah. The vehicles again, as in Dante's Peak, they are ridiculously sturdy, robust, (laughs) very robust. Can I remind you about the one being hit by a tanker? Nudged, and not even it was, it was nudged by Did a tanker. Did the tanker stop just before impact? No, it nudges it. <laughs> and it pushes them off the log. It gets them moving mm-hmm. again. But not in a way that you'd think would get them moving if you were hit by a tanker. Yeah, it was... Yeah, the ratios were all wrong. So I've got six. I've got Pet Survives Carnage. Two pets survive yeah. Carnage. Well done, doggos. I have Nature, You Cruel Mistress. Mid-disaster punch-up affecting hats. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? Hello, Mr. Paxton. Could title be a porn film title? Absolutely. And Captain Willing to Go Down with Ship slash Plane slash Building slash Twister because Helen Hunt, is she's she just wants to get in it. She just wants to get in it and see if her dad is still in it. Yeah. I think that's, that's what's driving her. So they're my six. So, tie break. It's a tie break. Uh, fight in the car park? Is that a film or...? <laughs> You're asking me that? She's asking me that. No, you absolutely smashed me. (laughs) Have you got the the Poseidon Adventure? I do have the Poseidon Adventure on on DVD. And we've got two weeks, haven't we? And I've got Airplane on DVD, so maybe... We should have swaps in. Two bankers. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Standard Issue for All Women.